Hello and welcome to Big Earth Energy. I'm your host, Dwayne Fields, and our mission here is to discuss all things sustainable thinking and action. It's important, it's complicated, and we can all learn more about what's actually going on, and more importantly, why. And to give you some information as to who I am, I'm a presenter, an explorer, and I've been fortunate enough to have led many carbon neutral expeditions through some of the world's most inhospitable places. I also co-founded the We Too Foundation, a charity focused on encouraging young people from deprived areas to learn more about sustainable living and general climate literacy. We'll be speaking with experts from different fields of sustainable thinking and action to hear more about the work they're doing, why they're doing it, and what we could be doing to up our own environmental game. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy, who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviors. You can find them at twigcard.com. The theme of this episode is construction without destruction. And joining us to explore this idea is Chloe Donovan from Natural Building Systems. Hello, Chloe, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So I've read a little bit about you and I want to kick things off by asking about your company because it's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So our company is called Natural Building Systems and what we do is manufacture buildings using structural panels that we fill with natural insulation materials. And we try and source as many of those insulation materials as we can from UK crops that sequester carbon. So ultimately, our goal is to try and use those buildings as a tool to store carbon and help tackle the climate emergency. You know a lot about what you're saying, but... Little old me, sequester carbon, yes. capture and storage. There's a lot of terminologies that are used and thrown around and it can be a lot for some people. What does sequester carbon mean? Yeah, so when plants grow, they obviously absorb carbon dioxide. That's what they process into energy. And so when they are soaking up that carbon dioxide, they're effectively storing that in them as they grow. So that's what sequester means. It basically just means soak up. Tell me a little bit about the business, what it does and how it does it. Yeah, so at Natural Building Systems, we are manufacturing buildings and we do this by using panels that are full of natural insulation materials. I mean, a way to think of it is kind of like a, a modern version of a brick. So instead of your house being made of, say, you know, 2000 individual bricks, we simplify that down by making bigger elements. So basically, you know, use a whole chunk of wall in one component. And we do that to make building more efficient, make buildings healthier and make building cheaper. Is it quicker as well? How long does it take to build a house? Oh, so much quicker, so much quicker. You're talking like days and weeks rather than months and years. What's Natural Building Systems' mission statement? Why are you in existence? Yeah, so Natural Building Systems is on a mission to prove that one of the biggest contributing factors to global warming, which is the built environment, can actually be used as a tool to tackle the climate emergency. Why this business though? Why not, I don't know, go out there and start speaking to other carbon capture companies and support them somehow? I got into this because of my interest in hemp as a agricultural crop. My family have a farm and I was basically looking for a way to try and support them to diversify the crops that they grow. They grow a lot of maize, which actually is quite bad for the environment, effectively takes a lot of inputs, which are like fertilizers and nitrogen fixing things. And it's really damaging for the soil. And I was trying to find a crop that also grows six foot tall that they can cut a maize into, which is what they've been doing with this maize crop, but actually would have a positive impact on the biodiversity and the environment on the farm. And I 
came across hemp. And the more I learned about it, the more I was like, this is just such a like obvious part of the solution to tackling, you know, agriculture is a massive contributing industry to the climate emergency. And then I found out that it also has these exceptional properties as a construction material. And that kind of led me on this journey that has ended up with me running a, a construction company. But actually, the reason that I am so passionate about it is because I see it as a way to both address the, the climate footprint of construction and agriculture simultaneously. And I feel like that's just too good an opportunity to be missed. Hold on. When you say hemp... In my mind, and I'm sure in a lot of people's minds, it's, hold on, is that hemp marijuana? <laughs> What's the difference between the stuff you use and the stuff that other people might not use in the same way you use it? Yeah, so hemp it describes a whole range of plants, basically, and industrial hemp is the plant that we use. So there are varieties of hemp that grow, which have THC, which is the kind of active ingredient in marijuana in terms of the drug sense. But then there's industrial hemp, which has no THC. So it does have CBD in it. And obviously CBD you can now buy in the UK. It's used in the pharmaceutical industry and people can buy CBD products. But actually, for farmers growing crops, industrial hemp is currently still quite hard to grow. It's quite heavily regulated because of its kind of association with marijuana and cannabis and, and the kind of illegal industry that has developed. But it's actually one of nature's most efficient forms of carbon capture. So second only to about bamboo is about four to five times more efficient than trees in terms of per acre, the amount of carbon that it can sequester which means to absorb and soak up. And so actually, I think it's a really key part of addressing the climate crisis, but trying to disentangle it from this historical criminalization is a, a big challenge. And that's really one of the missions that we're on. You say it absorbs three to four times more carbon than, say, trees. Put a number on that for me. What does that look like? I don't know, a square meter of hemp. What does that capture? Yeah, so if you look at it on a hectare basis, which is farming, they tend to talk in acres and hectares, but a hectare of hemp can sequester. Obviously, there's a lot of different data out there, but some of the ranges that people tend to reference and research is between about 15 to 22 tonnes of carbon per hectare. And forestry actually depending on whether you're talking about a deciduous forest, like depends on the type of forestry. Most trees, in fact, I think as far as I'm aware, all trees, they take at least five to 10 years to establish and actually start taking up any significant amount of carbon as where hemp is a crop that is an annual crop. It grows once a year. So it's something that you don't have to replace agricultural land with trees because you can achieve the same goal with a crop that actually has a positive impact on the yields of future crops. Okay, now we know what hemp is. We know how you grow it, where you grow it. We know it's good for the environment because it captures carbon and stores it. How do you turn hemp into a wall? Yeah, yeah. So one of the biggest challenges actually and what is really stifling the hemp industry is a, a lack of infrastructure. So a lack of access to the processing facilities that are needed. So hemp historically has been grown not only all over the world, but really extensively in the UK. If you look back three, 400 years, it was actually a tax that if you had more than 30 acres of land, you had to grow an acre of hemp that you paid to the crown as a tax. And that's because it was the fiber from hemp along with other plant material like flax, but mainly hemp and flax are the, the materials that made the canvas and the rope that basically powered the whole British empire, like the, the Navy, all the canvas wow. in, the, in the sails and in the ropes were made from these plant materials. Through then the British Empire and globalization, they discovered all of these synthetic alternatives. You have things like cotton, which are easier to process. And as a result, they've completely declined. 
you know, the textile industry in the UK has, has all been moved abroad. And so we don't really grow or process it, but that's what we're trying to change effectively. So it's almost going back to like super old technology and finding a, a use for it in modern day construction. That's exactly it. What, what we're doing is bringing together the, the digital technologies that exist now. So we use kind of precision engineering equipment or something called a CNC machine. It's basically like a a giant machine that cuts sheets of material down to like 0.3 of a mil tolerance and combining that with these natural materials in a way that can hopefully get those benefits which we can come on to but not only is it about the carbon but it's also about creating healthier homes so these natural materials are breathable effectively so all of these problems you see these days with damp and mold and condensation like literally killing people like it doesn't have to be like that if we just go back to using materials that are vapor permeable and vapor open then that can address that at the same time i've read that you guys use very low carbon construction method as well so what we're trying to do is make the sustainable choice the most scalable and therefore the most cost efficient and we do that by pre-manufacturing components for buildings most conventional buildings are made by combining you know 60 to 100 different materials from different suppliers that get delivered from different locations to a building site and it's down to a builder to try and mesh these together based on site that leads to a lot of inefficiencies and it leads to a lot of waste and so ultimately what we're trying to do is pre-manufacture it in an energy efficient way obviously we use renewable energy when we do that and it means that by the time our components get to a building site, they still have more carbon locked away in those natural materials than it's taken us to produce them. So effectively, so they're carbon negative. effectively, they're carbon negative. I mean, the challenge with this approach is when you talk about natural materials, they're only ever treated as being carbon neutral because ultimately one day that carbon will be, whether it's decomposed or burnt, that carbon will be released. But what that doesn't take into account is actually that we could be using it as a way to store carbon for the lifetime of a building, which is like 50, 60 years plus, instead of basically making it all about energy efficiency, which actually incentivizes the construction industry to use more high embodied carbon, plastic foam insulation now to offset future carbon footprints. It's kind of all backwards, yeah. basically. Your buildings or your houses, you can take them apart, yeah, move them somewhere else and put them back together. Mm-hmm. That's not normal for a house. Do you know what it is? It's because our goal has been to think about the whole life of the building, not just how it's made, but also what happens when you want to make a change to that building or if you ultimately want to get rid of it altogether. Construction and demolition account for a massive amount of waste. It's about 60% of the waste in the UK comes from construction and demolition. And there are massive movements to try and encourage, you know, reusing of materials, but actually trying to reuse individual bricks it's quite a labor intensive process to do that. So our goal was always to think about adaption and disassembly at the design stage. So each of our panels can be popped out basically without disrupting the surrounding panels. So if you want to add a door or a window or ultimately like you wanted to add a whole new room, the goal is to try and make it as easy as possible to maintain and adapt them. Looking at a regular house and one of your houses, what's the difference in the carbon footprint? Is it quantifiable? Yeah, so a typical house average carbon footprint is about 50 tonnes of carbon. Right. And because of the grid being decarbonized in terms of renewable energy increasing, it actually means that now the majority of the carbon footprint of your house has been emitted before you ever set foot through the door. As where what we're doing by storing carbon using natural materials our houses have a carbon footprint of negative 25 tonnes. So you're looking at about a 75 tonne offset per house, 
which is pretty substantial. Do you think that's going to make people like think, oh, well, my house has already got 25 tons of carbon in the bag so I can go out and burn down a wood. <laughs> I mean, I hope not. Yeah, I hope not too. But it's awesome though, isn't it? That you can save that much carbon by just building with the materials you're using. So the construction industry accounts for like 40% of carbon emissions when you include the energy it takes to heat our homes. But actually 10% of the whole of the country's carbon footprint is these embodied emissions, which is basically the carbon in the materials that are used. And that's more than aviation and shipping combined. Wow. And if we carry on with building the way that we are now, by 2050, that 10% will use up the entire UK's carbon budget. Hold on. I would bet my last £10 that if you ask somebody on the street, what is the biggest emitter of carbon? They would say shipping and transport and aviation. So you're telling me it's construction or just the homes we live in. Yeah, I mean, it's 37% according to the UN and the government's own evaluations and 10% of that is this embodied carbon portion. If you like what we're doing here, be sure to check out Twig, the people behind Big Earth Energy who are doing some really cool stuff with their bank of things. So check out their app, which allows you to start your own climate action today. While making money, you'll be extending a life of items and ultimately actioning sustainable behaviours. You can find them at twigcard.com. What does carbon literacy mean to you, if I said it out loud? Yeah, I mean, carbon literacy to me is understanding the lingo, like especially in construction. Like I've actually only been in the industry for now, you know, four years effectively. And I've had a lot of a very steep learning curve about some of these terminologies that the whole net zero embodied versus operational versus sequestered versus biogenic, you know, that there's a lot of terminology in there. Not kind of Absolutely. somebody who's not as deep in it as you are, doesn't work in that industry, somebody that just wants to get on with their regular job. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? And it's easy to forget once you are in that space, then trying to, you know, when I talk to other people like yourself, just trying to not slip into using that language. That climate literacy is just being confident with understanding the difference between what some of these terms mean. And if I said to you, Chloe, I want to improve my sustainable living, you know, I don't know where to start. What advice would you give me? I was thinking about this in the context of the built environment and I guess the challenge is that the people that build homes aren't, you know, not everyone has the benefit of being able to do something like that. I think actually, for me, the single quickest thing that you can do is to stop buying things new. I think buying things, particularly fashion, going secondhand before you go to a shop and buy something for the first time, that's one of the single biggest things that I think we as individuals can do. And eating less meat, if everyone ate 30% less meat, then it would almost completely balance out the carbon footprint that's from, all it would take i don't know the figures yeah, yeah. but 30 percent is the target for like if we all ate that then actually obviously I, i'm not a vegan i, I consider myself a flexitarian yeah, i yeah. try and eat meat a couple of times a week and only when i know that it's come from a good place in terms of its source 30 percent less meat for me that would probably be i probably eat meat eight or nine times a week 30 percent less that's just cutting it down to six times once a day if that yeah, and you're probably eating, most people eat meat twice a day. You know, they have it in two meals. It's like if you cut out, there's a movement called Meat Free Mondays. You know, yeah, yeah. if everyone got on board with things like that, I think we all can make a small change that collectively adds up to a lot. I think it needs to be fun though, doesn't it? Like the moment you say to someone, oh, cut that out, it sounds like it's a bad thing that yeah, you're doing. Yeah. Because when you're a kid, people doing cut that out. That's what I used to hear. <laughs> so when you say cut out meat, it almost sounds like a stick when we need to be offering carrots. Absolutely. See, this is a fun Meat Free Mondays. I might try that actually. What about those people that don't want to take responsibility? They want to negate any kind of responsibility around sustainable living or action. You know, God, it's a big problem. It's 
too much for me. I've got other things to worry about. What do we say to those people? I think the challenge is with addressing the climate emergency that there's this kind of human bias to not address, like our brains are wired to always be looking for the most immediate threat. And it means that something that's a bit more abstract and a bit more long-term like this, it makes it really hard for people to kind of feel like it actually has any impact on them. I think actually when you look at the data and you look at the figures, like we're talking six to 10 years that we need to make substantial changes and otherwise we will start to feel the impacts of it. And we all make these small changes and collectively it adds up to a lot. Do you think we're going to do it? Yeah, absolutely. I'm an optimist. Uh, yeah, I was about to ask you that because you seem very optimistic. It's like, yeah, you know, this is all bad and that's all bad, but hey, we can make it work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've spent some of my early career working in the youth sector and working in community organizing and just seeing the power that people can have when they come together. I think that's something that really inspires me. And, you know, I'm not afraid of failure and I don't think anyone should be like you learn best in failure. So why not give it a go? Is there a particular, I don't know, business industry company that you think is doing really badly at this and need to maybe be named and shamed? Well, obviously, I, I think the construction industry at large is a massive issue. As I've said, it's you know almost 40% of carbon emissions. But I think that within the industry, there's a lot of greenwashing, as there is in, in all industries. But the challenge in construction is that the regulations don't really match up. Like it's all, all the regulation is around operational efficiency. When people talk about net zero in construction, basically carbon neutral in terms of the heating and energy that goes into your home, but nothing to do with actually the materials that these homes are being built with. What's greenwashing? I keep hearing the term and I, I have an idea of what it means. It's, you know, you cover it up with some money or you cover it up with some action. What is it really? Yeah, I mean, it's when people make a lot of overstated environmental claims and it's something that I'm very aware of not doing in our industry or in our business, trying to be transparent and show the data behind how we're getting to these calculations. But I think greenwashing is where companies that effectively aren't sustainable, they kind of get a small piece of a picture and they really lean on that to try and make sell themselves look idea. better. Yeah. yeah, to make money basically, to yeah. sell products when actually it's not very genuine. We're talking about a house made of hemp. I've seen people burn and smoke a similar plant is it not flammable? <laughs> I think that's a common misconception around natural materials in general in construction. So obviously, most of these materials do have some capacity to burn. But actually, when you're comparing them to what is used in construction, you have these petrochemical based plastic foams, you know, just like the materials that are the reason that the Grenfell Tower went up in the way that it did. It's because it's got oil based petrochemical foams that produce right. hydrogen cyanide when they yeah, burn like that. That's, yeah. That's what really killed people. Ultimately, natural materials aren't necessarily inherently more of a fire risk. So our building system has been put through rigorous fire tests this year with an organization called BRE, who are the Building Research Establishment. And so we've passed the fire tests that you need to be able to pass building control. And some of that is about using some of the additives and things that we might use help with fire resistance. But actually, it's like when these materials do burn, the smoke that they produce is not going to be as toxic or as harmful as conventional, commonly used building materials at the moment. Let me just put myself in a listener's shoes. I live in a house. It's airtight. It's well insulated. Why would I want a house that can be split apart? Is it as airtight? Is it as well insulated? Because I'm thinking about my bill now. That's a massive gas bill, electric bill at the end of the month. 
Yeah, so the regulations and the kind of the move in the construction industry has been towards more and more energy efficient homes, which is obviously important in terms of keeping the cost of energy bills and things down. But what that actually translates into that, for example, there's something called the passive house movement, Mm -hmm. which is uh, developed, which is about ultra energy efficient homes that are really airtight. But actually, an airtight environment isn't that nice to live in. It becomes really stifling. It's got really bad air quality. And the problem you get is they use these plastic membranes on the inside of walls. And when you get a hole in those membranes, it causes basically moisture to and air to kind of collect. So you, you end up with problems with mold and condensation. Got you. And then you have to put mechanical ventilation in to be able to get the airflow into these airtight buildings. And so what we're doing by contrast is you get the thermal efficiencies, you get the energy efficiency of the walls, but actually in a way that the moisture can still move through them. So there's a difference between air tightness and moisture tightness effectively. So that's what we're aiming for is an airtight, energy efficient building that isn't what we call vapor closed. Wow. I mean, that was a lot, but what I took away from that is mold. Now I had mold once, it's not pleasant. It was really bad. There was a leaky roof drain and it just created moisture on the inside of the wall. It just never dried out. I started to get breathing problems. So I know the value of a well-ventilated house. I give you a billion pounds. I say, Chloe, come up with a sustainable action plan. What would it look like? It would be to establish a help to build movement. You know how the government has this help to buy scheme where they'll help first time homeowners to be able to get their first mortgage. Yes, yes. Actually, the construction industry in the UK in particular has become increasingly concentrated in the hands of massive developers, basically. There used to be a lot more small businesses, local builders and individual people building their own homes. What that's led to is this disconnect because the people building the homes aren't the people that are going to have to live in these homes. You know, once they've handed over the keys and you've got your mortgage, like they don't care what happens to that house in 10, 20, 30 years. So that is not in their interest to build a a house that lasts. So if I had a million, a billion pounds, I'd basically use it to create a scheme that helps first time aspiring homeowners be able to I'm not saying they have to build it themselves like out there with the hammers in the yeah. muddy field but just to actually enable people who you know if you can afford to save up for a mortgage then you can also afford to build your own home and we have such an incredible housing shortage in the UK all the experts are saying that we're about to hit the lowest levels of house building since the second world war because of lots of pressures that are kind of squeezing the industry But actually, if we can put a billion pounds into building more homes and doing so in a way that makes it part of the solution to the climate emergency, I mean, that's what I'd do with a billion pounds. (laughs) Is that the aim for natural building systems to fill that gap and get people to build their homes more? The goal is to create a model for a local construction economy. So we want to be able to grow local crops that are manufactured locally, that are used to build local homes, and then to scale that up, not just nationally, but globally. So... It's about creating jobs and it's about creating income that connects local agriculture with local communities, like grow to build basically is the goal. Some people might argue that by building this way, actually we're not creating jobs, we're giving up on some jobs because you don't need a bricklayer or someone to build the foundations. They'd say, oh, well, you're taking away jobs. I think it's really interesting to look at the changing nature of work, like not just in the construction industry, but across society generally bricklaying not to disparage anyone who's in that industry because it's obviously a a really important job and, and can be really rewarding but actually if you can find a way to do that so that that person can do it in a more efficient way in a safer way and not have to spend all of their days out 
on a building site, but actually can be building more homes using the same workforce. Like it's definitely not about replacing the conventional trades. It's about giving innovation and technology as a tool for these people to be able to do their jobs better and more more safely and more efficiently. If I was, say, kingmaker and I could click my fingers and make you prime minister or president, what would your sustainable living action plan entail? I think the number one thing that I would do would be to regulate embodied carbon in construction. What does that mean? Because embodied carbon, that's another one of those terms. Yeah, yeah. So obviously the in the construction industry, and there's all these targets about uh, building performance. Like if you want to build a house, you have to meet certain levels of performance because people know that everyone wants to live in a house that is well insulated and is affordable to heat. So the government has set these regulations. But as I was saying before, the embodied carbon is the energy and the carbon that is created when that house or that building is made. And at the moment, that's not addressed at all. But like I say, if we carry on building the way that we are by 2050, that will have blown the whole carbon budget for the UK if we don't do something about that. So basically regulating embodied carbon, which is happening all over the world and in Europe in particular, in certain countries, it is now something that is regulated. That's definitely one of the things I would do. And the other thing I would do is votes at 16. Having more political, absolutely. I was involved in the, the UK Youth Parliament when I was younger. And I'm not political per se, but it was such an empowering experience to be able to kind of see how decisions are made, how government works, how, you know, at a local level, it's actually something you can engage with. Like politics can seem so abstract and far apart that there are plenty of 16 year olds I know that are more well informed than some of the 50 year olds. I yeah. know. So I do that. I second that. I work for the Scouts Association. I'm a scout ambassador. I have the foundation, the We Too Foundation, where we work with young people and they are so informed. If we're going to leave this planet to them, we should give them some say. Absolutely. Let's say I gave you a magic lamp. You know, you rub it, you'll get three wishes. What would your top three wishes be? Just for the record, I have not got a billion pounds. I'm not a kingmaker and I don't have a magic lamp. <laughs> oh, damn it. Yeah, I'm just saying that from now. So there's no expectations after this gone. <laughs> so... I would decriminalise industrial hemp. I mean, I would decriminalise all hemp, but I would particularly decriminalise industrial hemp. Hold on, you could get in trouble for industrial hemp? Despite the fact that CBD products are legal in the UK to consume, it is illegal for you as a farmer to grow and produce your own CBD products. If you're a farmer and you want to grow industrial hemp, you have to go to the Drugs and Firearms Administration in the Home Office to apply for a licence to grow hemp. Is it hard to get? It's a massively complicated process that really disincentivizes farmers from from growing it. They have all these really weird kind of stipulations, like you have to shield it from public view and you have, really? you know, it, it's just really out of date and it doesn't recognize the potential that these types of crops have to help. Do you know many farmers that would just switch over if it was easier? The other half of the issue is not just uh, the licensing and the ability to grow it and the access to the seeds, but it's also the ability to process it. It's the supply chain. This is what I found when I became interested in it as a crop. It's like, well, if we did grow hemp, what would we do with it? Like, where would it go? You know, what can it be used for? And that's how I became so enthused by its potential within construction. But basically, it needs government. I mean, maybe, yeah, with my three billion pounds, that's why I would invest setting up lots and lots of hemp processing plants. You've still got two more wishes, so you can always oh, wish yeah, for okay, more money. Oh, yeah, there we yeah. go. We'll wish for some hemp processing plants. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, I guess something a bit more uh, left field, perhaps, would be to abolish land ownership. That's something that I think is... Is that a big problem? 
I think it's stifling if people have more democratic access to land. Like, obviously, the government sold off a lot of, of publicly owned land over the years. And if you've got a housing system like ours, where you could build a building for 50, 60 years and then take it away again, actually, like, the ability for people to be able to build houses is being really held back by the access to the space to be able to do that. I asked all the other contributors about their guilt because I feel guilty about how I travel from time to time. On a scale of one to 10, generally, how guilty do you feel about your travel? Well, I live in a much more rural environment. I actually don't live in London. Are you so. already making excuses? Yeah. All right, go Well, I, there is no public transport for me to get to work. So I, I do drive, but if there was an option to do public transport, then I would. I try and work from home as much as I can, actually, just to reduce that. I think that's something that the pandemic actually was really helpful for, was making people realize you don't need to commute into the office every day to do so many different jobs. So, yeah, I mean, I do feel guilt about having to commute but at the same time it's particularly in an isolated kind of rural location like where i live it's like you you really don't have so a you choice. shouldn't feel guilty you have to get around i can't help but notice you didn't put a number on it oh uh, i'm not going to tell you what my number is by the way <laughs> i guess i would say I, I do feel let's say i probably like a seven 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 that's quite high is that yeah, high that's high <laughs> so 10 is really guilty and like seven's bad but i don't think you should feel too guilty and i think a lot of the time we put a lot of pressure on people to consider things that they might not be able to control. What's the most shameful driver for your carbon footprint at the moment and what are you doing about it? Oh, so I'm a trustee for this fantastic charity called the Food Ethics Council. It's right. all about the food systems and that's obviously not just access to food, but it's also about like how we use food and what we do with it when we're done. And one of the things that I'm eternally, I feel guilty about is the fact that I don't compost or I basically at, at home, our food waste is going into our general waste. There's no compost scheme that the local authority offers. And that's something that's such an easy thing to just get a compost bin. I definitely need to do something about that. Are you going to do anything? Yeah, I am. Yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> it's a conversation I have with my housemates literally this week. So is it a thing where you just get a bin, put some worms in it and start that process? If you want to do a wormery, you can. I mean, a compost bin is literally just a bin that you, it will decompose itself yeah. over time. Again, there are innovative solutions in this space. There are ones you can get that you put on your countertop that basically accelerate that process. It kind of yeah. does a weird, like a it kind of cooks it and mm -hmm. turns it into compost I've effectively overnight. Really cool. Yeah, I've considered that. That, but they're just really expensive for something that nature will do naturally i guess so yeah you, you can get a wormery and do it that way but i'd say a compost bin is you know pretty interestingly easy. that's one of our biggest problems at the moment isn't it compost and soil because we are destroying the soil with all the chemicals and toxins that we're putting in there and killing off every microbe and one of the things that we really need to do is start putting some stuff back putting some life back into it what's the most positive impact on your carbon footprint at the moment well, I would say the job that I'm in, I guess, the industry that we're trying to change, the fact that we're trying to get more farmers growing, not just hemp, but other biomass materials that can be used. I mean, I, I think that to me is something that I feel really passionate about. I feel like it's an area where there, it's screaming out for solutions and innovation. But I think beyond that, yeah, just trying to be more considerate about where my food comes from. That's the other thing that I'm kind of trying to do. Going back to you being prime minister or president, you're having a VIP party. It's a massive party. Everyone that's worth being there is there. At the door, there's two people. You've got room for one more person. You've got Donald Trump and you've got Greta Thunberg. 
which one do you let in? Oh, Greta, hands down. Greta. You didn't yeah. even think you no. just said Greta. Why? Oh, because I like to surround myself with people that inspire me and that I find optimistic. I think uh, yeah. don't need to be bringing don't need to be bringing that bad energy yeah. vibes in in there. You wouldn't want to take on a challenge of I don't know converting Trump. I don't think I'm big-headed enough to think that I'm going to change the opinions of someone like that. I think that I'd much rather connect with someone that I find really inspiring. Finally, do you have any books or recommended reading, any podcasts, any websites that you think anyone that wants to find out more can go and check out? Yeah, I think there's two books I've read recently that I would really recommend. So one of them is a book called Citizens by a guy called John Alexander. And it's uh, I think the title is basically Why the Answer to Fixing Everything is All of Us. And it basically is full of some fantastic examples of people coming together to try and solve problems and how we can shift the lens of like viewing ourselves as uh, kind of individual consumers to viewing ourselves more as collaborative citizens and about how that's actually the key to solving so many of these problems. Like collectively, we have the answers. It's just actually coming together and kind of cooperating in order to achieve that. And I say the other one I've been enjoying recently is a book called Green Swans. The subtitle is like The Coming Boom in Regenerative Capitalism. Again, it's hopeful. It's this idea that like the solutions are out there, the innovation is there, the technology exists. It's just really how we try and apply them at scale. And that I found really inspiring in terms of how we are running our business it's all well and good doing this construction thing but like if we do five projects a year it's not going to make any kind of difference to the whole carbon footprint of the construction industry we have to be talking like hundreds and thousands of buildings to be able to do that so it's it's a good lens to try and think about solving these problems through if our listeners want to find out more about you your business where do they go to do that yeah, well, obviously I'm on, on the usual social media. Our website contains a lot of interesting and useful information. That's www.naturalbuildingsystems.com, all one word. Otherwise, like, you know, LinkedIn and, and the usual. I'm not on TikTok. <laughs> Don't look at me there. <laughs> Great stuff. Chloe, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you, dear listeners. We'll be back with another episode soon. <laughs>